you have your Bibles tonight, you might find John chapter 1 with me. Now, one thing we shouldn't miss, particularly about the life of John the Baptist, is that his life is a powerful apologetic. Let me see if I can give a couple of illustrations. You know, yesterday there was a great crowd. I, I really don't know. I think about nine different churches were represented. Great crowd working out at the schoolhouse. Toward the end of one group's day, uh, I saw this, this uh, a smaller lady, and I, I wouldn't call her old, but she was older than me. She was trying to lug one of these water coolers you often see on construction sites or farms. Big water cooler, you know. And I said, can I help you with that? And she said, sure. And I said, where does it go? She says, in my husband's pickup truck. I said, it was a lot of pickup trucks. Which one? She said, first white one. I said, great. So I picked it up, and, and uh, I already had something else in my hand, and it was you know, already biting into my fingers. So I hoisted it up here and kind of in front of myself and was holding it like this. And, and uh, I walked out the door. I just, it was a push-button door. I just walked out, and I was walking along, and I finally positioned where I could see the first truck, the first white truck, the first any truck. The first truck was white, and so was the other first truck. The first two trucks I came to were sitting like this in a corner, and this one was white, and that one was white. And I just stopped, and I looked like this, you know, and, and I thought, well, what does this gentleman do for a living? Oh, he works at a golf course. His is probably the newer GMC, not the older F-150. And uh, I looked to see if anybody had any golf course insignia on it. It was not. And so I set the cooler down on the ground and fixed my face with a look of stupidity. On cue, the man walked out the door, and he saw exactly what I was thinking. He says, mine is the first old truck. I said, oh, it's this one. He come and helped me, and we lifted it into it. And somebody says, how has this got anything to do with John or John the Baptist? Listen, a lot of times, a lot of times, when it comes to believing anything of the Lord, the enemy doesn't want you to have faith. And if you have faith, he doesn't want you to have confidence or joy or strength in your walk. And so what the enemy does is the enemy throws up falsehoods. Now, the enemy doesn't care, say, for example, if instead of believing in Jesus, you, you follow Buddha or, or Muhammad. Or, but where a lot of people get tricked up, is in the, tripped up is in the things that are somewhat like Jesus. And so what happens is God gives us such clear evidence that to practice an orthodox faith with confidence that you believe in the right thing becomes possible by the evidence. And John the Baptist becomes a powerful apologetic. Somebody is saying, I don't know what he means by powerful apologetic. Well, a, an apology is not saying you're sorry. An apology is given a reasonable defense for what you think or believe or have done. So let's say I smack John. John, thank you for being here. I like to pick on you when you're here. You know what he's going to say, right? <laughs> let's say I smack John. And John wants me to apologize. And so I say, I smacked you, John, because I, I don't like you. That's my reason. That's my reasonable defense for my action. And John goes, well, do you feel bad? No. I have a reasonable defense, but I'm not sorry. 
In that case, John and I probably are going to struggle in our friendship. See, sorry is how you feel about something. It's when you have remorse, and that remorse leads you to feelings. An apology is when you're trying to make sense of something. John helps us make sense of Jesus. Let me give you one more illustration before we read the passage. So the room has got Duke fans in it. Say amen. The room has Carolina fans in it. Say amen. They do not, which is indicative of something, you know. The, ro- the room has one state fan in it. Christina, say, th- they're not. Uh, silently not participating. I'm kidding. Uh, okay. So, so if I were to tell you guys that in his last year, Coach K is going to win the national championship, you can't, honestly, for, last 40 years, you can't count Duke out. You can kind of go, oh, Okay. If I'm saying Hubert Davis is going to win the national championship in his first year, you at least go, okay, maybe. If I tell you that NC State is going to win the national championship, yeah, you, the delusion is strong in these ones. All right? But, now listen, but if I say I'm going to become the head coach of the two-campus mighty Piedmont Community College Pacers, and I will, this year, lead them to a Division I national championship, your response would be what? What is Tim smoking? But if I did become coach, and we did wrangle our way into Division I, and we did raise up a basketball team, and we did win the national championship in 2022, you would then say, what's next? Because my prognostication would suddenly make believers out of y'all. John the Baptist is this sort of powerful apologetic. He is a singular figure meant to call out a preeminent figure. And the evidence about John the Baptist is so solid that when John the Baptist tells us about the Messiah, having looked at the evidence, we're not guessing is it this white truck or that white truck. John the Baptist helps us to see that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem to Mary in the household of Joseph, is that one. So suddenly, whatever sort of blind leap of faith we had to take, it has become much narrower. There's a seeing step, not a blinded leap. John the Baptist strengthens our faith. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, this is how the Bible reads. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said... I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither 
Christ, the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, in other words, the day after this questioning, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Father, as we open sacred scripture together, open it to us. We could deal with it as a literary device, but we want revelation. We want illumination. We want to know that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of very God, has spoken to us. Open your word to your people, not that we may glory in our understanding, that we may exalt in your holiness. Bless your people now. Bless our friends visiting with us that we might see Jesus. In Christ I pray. Amen and amen. I want to be brief to the point. One out of two won't be bad. We're going to meet John in five questions. Five questions. They're not even my questions. These are the questions these guys asked. Did you notice there was a plethora of questions in those first few verses? Let's look at some of these questions. They ask him firstly, who are you? And he simply, knowing the real core of their question, he says, I'm not the Christ. You know, if I walk in a room, they say, who are you? I might say, well, I'm not Puff Daddy. Somebody would laugh, right? Because it's obvious, I'm not Puff Daddy. But he's doing stuff that would make you think things. He's out here in the wilderness. He's calling people to repentance. This is high and holy stuff. So it's not an illegitimate question. He is acting strange, prophetically. He is speaking strange, prophetically. So it's not an Ill illegitimate question. He just clears up the biggest portion of the record that quick. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Did you notice it says, and he confessed twice? <laughs> In other words, he was really clear, and they truly understand. Follow-up question, second question. Are you Elijah? Okay. Do they believe in ghosts? Do they believe that Elijah has come back? First off, it's not unreasonable. Let's look at an interesting piece of evidence. In recognizing and calling out Elijah one time in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says this, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Okay. Now, what do we know John dressed like? Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Wow. So he's out here in the wilderness saying prophetic-sounding things, looking quite a bit like this very famous prophet. Is the question like, are you Elijah back from the dead? Are you have the spirit of Elijah on you? Is this your ministry? It's a legitimate question. Did you notice how 
John the Baptist answers, no, I'm not. He's like, uh, oh, man, what was the guy who used to play with the Seattle Seahawks? I loved him, the running back. Mar yeah, Marshawn Lynch, he's given that sort of interview. They ask him these really, you know, probing questions, and he goes, appreciate you. Thank you. Are you the one? No. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Sort of hard to interview a guy like that, right? Third question. Are you the prophet? Hmm. This is a loaded statement. What do you notice about that question? It's not an indefinite article. It's not, are you a prophet? It's a definite article. Are you the prophet? This is, in other words, big mojo. They're asking something very specific. Now, I think what they're leaning into, I think what they're leaning into is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, hold it right there. Back up so they don't keep reading. Back up, Mary. I don't want them to keep reading. I should have separated. You know, I like to do that thing. This is the rest of the story. This is speaking about Moses. What was very very unique about Moses' ministry. He's a lawgiver. In other words, they're going to raise up one like you, Moses, a lawgiver. He's going to speak my word, my law. Will it be a reiteration? Could be. Saying the same thing again. Or would it be a growth in the law of God? Would it be a new revelation? Would it be a new covenant? The point is, they would have just as much authoritative speaking power as Moses. So they say, are you this one? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I humbly would submit to you, these questioners have the wrong idea about that prophecy. They asked that question, are you the prophet? But they didn't have the rest of the story, or they missed the point. That's really the truth. I'm just being nice. They're asking John, again, in essence, are you the Messiah? They think this prophet, this singular prophet, is a different guy. It's really the Messiah. Now look at the rest of the evidence in Deuteronomy chapter number 15, 18. Pick it up at verse 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. In other words, he said, Moses said, don't speak to us again. It's too much to handle. He said, but I am. I'm going to raise up another one. I'm going to talk real strong to y'all again. This is God saying, I am going, you know how your parents say, don't, don't make me come in there. God says, I'm coming in there. I'm going to raise up one like you. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all what I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He's talking about the Messiah. That singular, very special prophet is the Messiah. So they say, who are you? I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? John is a gentleman. He just answers simply no. What they're missing is they're saying again. They just don't understand. You know, are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? He could say, I've already told you. I answered you. So they hit him with another line of questioning. It's really two questions, but we'll, we'll, we'll play them together as one. It's like they say, well, who are you? What do you say about yourself? Now, his answer, whew, I get so excited when I think about how he does answer. He basically quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3. 
in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John says, I'm that voice. Now let's pause right here and see if I can give you an everyday illustration. Does anybody in here, can't think of anyone who, does anyone have to drive to Raleigh every day in our congregation? Oh. <laughs> okay. So I've got, I'm, I've been talking to the DOT. I talked to the, a guy this morning. And I told him, the next time all the traffic stops, let's just plug up both ends, okay? And this is what we're going to do. We're going to get out, and we're going to find out who lives here and is driving here every day, who lives here and is driving here every day, and they are going to switch houses. And we're going to fix all of this. Because every day it goes, it's a theological term for meaning it gets stopped up. If I had to live over there, I'd move. No doubt. I couldn't handle it. You say, what's Highway Ford and the DOT and Raleigh? Listen, Isaiah's prophecy was to those exiles taken captive in Babylon. He's saying, hey, guys, guess what? Your day of salvation is nigh at hand. And God is not just going to set you loose. He's going to set all of you loose. Everyone is going to be made free. Everyone can return back to the promised land. Everyone can come back to the temple. Worship is going to be restored. Your salvation is going to come through. And it's going to be so awesome that we're going to need to build a super highway from Babylon to Jerusalem. The road is going to have to be wide and smooth. Traffic's going to be flying. Your freedom is coming at such a rate and such a number that we're going to need a huge road. Every mountain is going to have to be made low. Every hole is going to have to be filled up. Every rock is going to have to be removed because God is coming and the people are going to be set loose so it's not just a fancy saying when John says I'm that one crying in the wilderness because there's a greater deliverance coming we're going to need a big road because God's going to turn such numbers of people loose from the shackles of Satan he's going to forgive so many sinners he's going to make a way through Jesus Christ for people to be saved and the highway must be paved for this deliverer to come and lead his people how is the highway paved repent 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 john's message would not be popular in 2021 if you see anything that the deliverer would not enjoy when he shows up to set you free stop it now stop don't impede your ability to recognize the deliverer. So he was saying, get your heart right. Get your heart right so you can be set free. He answers this question with such a boldness. He's already been so humble. Are you the one? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? What, what is this you're doing? <laughs> I'm working for heaven's DOT, baby, and I'm building roads. Because we're getting ready to get out of here. At that point, all the Pharisees came out and leaned on shovels. The fifth big question, and I think it's legitimate. They, you know, they say, okay, 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 so why are you baptizing people? All right, you're not, you're not the one. Check. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Got it. Uh, who do you think you are? What are you doing? It's a legitimate question. John's answer is humble. And it proves they aren't really listening to what he's saying. Because what John is saying, John the Baptist, his ministry is about, if you'll allow my paraphrase, it's like he's saying, I'm urging people 
in helping them prepare for the coming of God Almighty, for Yahweh. That's the name he invokes. He's saying, I'm getting folks ready for God and his salvation. He was definitely humble. Do you notice any of these big titles, these big opportunities, John doesn't take them. He doesn't take them to say, look at me. So no, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one that's coming. I'm, I'm just getting the way ready. I want to pause for a minute for a bit of application before we press on. You know, we only had one John the Baptist. Somebody say amen. And of him, Jesus says, best man ever born of a womb of a woman. That's quite a compliment. I think we look at the John the Baptists, the Apostle Pauls, the martyrs like Stephen, the dynamic personalities like Peter, even those famous guys like Barnabas or Luke or the gospel writer John Mark, and we say those are the people through whom the gospel goes out. No, it goes out through every sealed believer who takes up their calling to be a gospel witness. I don't want us, we are appropriately honoring John, recognizing his unique contribution, and somebody saying, well, I'm, I'm not a John. Good. Praise God. You aren't called to be. Let me give you a little bit of historical evidence. Let me start with a guy I enjoy reading. His name is Tertullian. I would say he's the first true apologist of the early church. He said this in one of his books, we are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your God. Tertullian was saying believers have taken the gospel everywhere. They stood everywhere but in the pagan pulpits. They stood everywhere. They take, go read it in context, chapter 36 or 37 in Apology. He's saying that's how the gospel has went forth into and through the Roman Empire. Regular believers have taken up the call to share the gospel, and they've gone everywhere. It wasn't just Tertullian that understood this. There was a, 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 he, wasn't a, a, he was a Christian, but this wasn't a Christian work. His name was Edward Gibbon. He wrote The History and Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Now, <clears throat> if you're having trouble sleeping, it's several volumes. Pick it up. It'll cure you. But one quote that has always stuck to me is he noted that of the believers who died in mass at Roman hands for centuries, they still, this is his quote, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received. Even at the fear of death, it became the norm for every believer to share the gospel. Reading this very book, the church historian Adolf Harnack said, and this is how I discovered that quote, Adolf Harnack said, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by any means of informal missionaries. In other words, don't mistake what really happened. God used ordinary people. You're not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is John the Baptist, but you're, you share Jesus. Your mission won't be as big as he is, but it is just as unique as he is. Because John the Baptist is not around the people you're around. You are. Somebody say amen. We are to be witnesses. 
Now here's a big application before we move on. We might very well note, and we should, that these questions reveal John's life witness, but we also should note that it also gives us John's verbal witness. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean something really big. Everybody loves to quote St. John of Assisi, or St. Francis of Assisi. He says, uh, preach the gospel everywhere if necessary, use words. And I hear that more than not as an excuse not to witness the gospel. Like, I'm just going to go around being nice. Well, that's unmitigated hogwash if you take that quote to mean that. John, I mean, Francis of Assisi is, is, a, is saying live a gospel-oriented life, a genuine gospel-oriented life. So much so that people don't question what you're about. But I'm telling you, you're meant to use words in the gospel. Somebody say amen, please. You're meant to explain Jesus to folks. To at least witness Jesus in deed and in word. And that's what John does in these last few verses, verses 29 through 34. Saw him coming the next day, and this sentence is probably one of the most important sentences in the entire canon of Scripture. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in my remaining couple of minutes, I want to just concentrate on that sentence. There's so much more that could be said. Everywhere you're in John, there is a suitcase full of sermons. Every, almost every sentence. You know, I thought about, uh, side note, you East Rockers know I a lot of times will write through a book I'm preaching through, write devotionally. I started, I started a month ago. I haven't made it through verse 5 yet. I decided to give up. I, I, to, I, I'm not. I'm going to write here and there. I, I can't study where I am because I'm always still where I was, and I need to get where I'm going. I'm just going to preach, and y'all will have to bear the burden of hearing more than you want to, or maybe more than you should. So let me concentrate on that statement by giving you guys three pieces of encouragement or apologetics. You call it what you want. God will give it to you as you need. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, let us never lose the precious importance of this. He is the Lamb that provides a sacrifice. Think of the Passover Lamb when God set them free from Egypt. He says, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slay it. And I want you to take its blood and a hyssop and I want you to paint the top and the sides of your door. And when the death angel comes, he'll see that you have obeyed me in faith and he'll pass over you. Or think of all those lambs at the temple where people sacrificed so that their sins would be covered. Those were a lamb of their sin. This is the lamb of the world. He isn't just covering up some infidelity, some minor robbery, a year's worth of gossiping. He is covering up the sin of the world. What? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, the prophet spoke of the lamb in this way. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before it shares is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John says he is a witness of the lamb, not just a sin covering, a sin absorbing sacrifice. All the sins of the elect were upon Christ. Secondly, the lamb provides a substitute. Because time is flying, let me, let me go to someone who can speak much more compactly and eloquently than I could. Let me share with you guys a quote from a book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. 
Piper says this, and you'll see it on the screen. The Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a, sing, like a king on the, way home, on the way to a throne. And he went out to Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife. I want to confess, that was the phrase that got me. He gave his majestic neck to the knife, and they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. And he did this willingly as a substitute for the elect. I know a couple weeks ago I read from Revelation 5. I'm, I'm, I'm standing before you trusting the Holy Spirit, I believe, in our public gathering here, God's leading me to read it again. It'll be on the screen, but you may want to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Let me share with you guys a scene that's in the right now future. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, and this is John the Revelator, John the Gospel writer, we believe. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Pause right there. If you can't capture this in your imagination, Think of those stories of King Arthur. No one could pull the sword from the stone. The whole kingdom rejoiced when somebody was chosen to wield the sword. We write stories about this because it's embedded into the normal psyche of humanity. We know there's some things that not everyone's worthy of. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang us new songs saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When John says, Behold, this is the Lamb 
who takes away the sin of the world. He is pointing in his day to that one who Revelation 5 is pointing to in that day. And it's one, it's Jesus, and he's worthy. The only man-made thing in heaven is the wounds on our Savior. And he bears them for his glory. And so that his children will know when they see him, it is he who died for me. No other creature will bear this honor. No other creature is worthy of this honor. When he says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, his amazement of the report of John the Baptist is realized in his revelation of seeing this lamb in that place. He couldn't even explain it. It had like seven eyes and seven horns. He was blown away. The only thing that didn't surprise him was who it was. This is that one. He came as a substitute. The lamb also provides satisfaction. Go back to my silly illustration. Let's say I smack John and I say, John, what can I do? I am sorry. My reason is frankly dumb, John. It's, it's inexcusable to tell you the truth. What can I do to be forgiven? And John says, John says, buy me ice cream. Let's say we go back in time, Michael, where you at, Michael? And we find that Ferrari for 2,500 bucks. And we get it for John, and we fix it up and clean it up, and I take it to him. And you know, John might be like, vroom, vroom, baby. But it ain't my ice cream. See, God's, it, John would be right to be angry if I slapped him. He, he would be just. I think we forget sometimes how sin offends God. You know, uh, yesterday, everyone who was working together sweated incrementally all day long. We left home smelling probably pretty good. We got home stinking. But none of us hardly noticed because we had stunk incrementally. You know? I got out of the shower last night, and I picked up my dirty clothes in the bathroom floor. And I was like, whoa, whose are these? I think when our righteousness is made complete, we'll finally be sick of our sin. We'll see it for what it is. God's never lost his righteousness. He sees it for what it is today. His justice and wrath are just, and Jesus satisfies. And one quick quote from Romans 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that means made right, much more shall we be saved from him by the wrath of God. We're made right, released from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, now much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We're not just brought to zero we're taken into eternity, if I can say it like that. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. John's singular life, John's magnificent ministry, all it does is solidify in my mind that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, of the Virgin Mary, to the household of Joseph, from, from the right tribe, born in the right city, from the right kin folks. If you didn't have enough evidence he was the one, John really brings it home. He really brings it home. This singular ministry of John calls out the singular nature of the Christ. And we ought to be sure that the witnesses can be believed. 
and we ought to have confidence in our Savior. Let me ask you some questions today. Are you justified in Christ today? Now imagine, imagine we've offended God. Don't imagine we've offended God. <laughs> I should take that. We, we have offended God. Let the church say we have offended God. And God says the only way to be made right with me is through the blood of Jesus, by Christ alone, through faith alone. And you start saying, well, I'm just going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to stop cussing, and I'm going to you know, pick out your works. You know, I'm going to stop burning gasoline and ride a bicycle everywhere. If that's the standard, your boy's going to hell for sure. I'm not riding no bicycle everywhere. But let's say he sets his standard as Christ. He has. And we start trying works. Or if you say, I'm going to get baptized. Or if you say, I'm going to join a church. Or I'm going to start giving more. All of those things are not wrong in and of themselves. Let the church say, but they don't save. No one is saved by works. The bill, you know, God's not coming. Will this be cash or credit card, you know, or check, check, cash, or credit card? No, he says, will this be Jesus? And if you say no, then he says no. The bill is still owed. It's not made right. Are you justified? Have you received him? In other words, is he the Lord of your life? Is, and I just do this to illustrate. There's much more categories than these, but is he the Lord of your time, talent, and treasure? How is that lordship being worked out in your life? Is your lifestyle a witness to the glorious gospel of Jesus? Do you give verbal witness? Do you share the gospel with people? John is singular, and he helps us solidify our faith. John is also an example by which we can learn to live our faith. Most importantly, John is a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, Get ready. Get ready. Salvation is coming through Christ. Do you know him today? This time of invitation, we'll sing. That gives the spirit room to start to reach in and whisper to us. You may need to grab a trusted friend and pray together. You may want to come down and just pray alone. You may need to make a public profession of faith and express a desire to be baptized. There's all kinds of ways to respond to this. Some of them are very quiet. Some of them are public. The point is, listen for the Spirit to speak and respond. Respond to God. This isn't a static event. The Spirit wants to move and work amongst us and uh, get us to talking back to Him. Use this time to search the Spirit and respond to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. What a refreshment to my soul. I boldly ask you, in this local church, through this local church, through its individuals, its families, its formal and informal ministries, place us in the marketplace, in companies, in businesses, in friendship settings, where we can have audience for the gospel and make us faithful to share it, make us faithful to live it. Grow our church in gospel effectiveness, grow us in treasuring Christ, savoring him, and grow us in ministry burden. Do it, God, for your glory. Do it, Father, for our good. In Jesus I pray, amen.